Section 33 of The Letters of Mark Twain Complete. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain. Volume 4, Chapter 31. Letters, 1891, to Howells, Mrs. Clemens, and others. Return to Literature. American Claimant. Leaving Hartford. Europe. Down the Rhine. Clemens was still not without hope in the machine, at the beginning of the new year, 1891. But it was a hope no longer active, and it presently became a moribund. Jones, on about the middle of February, backed out altogether, laying the blame chiefly on Mackey and the others who, he said, had decided not to invest. Jones let his victim down easy with friendly words, but it was the end, for the present, at least, of machine financiering. It was also the end of Mark Twain's capital. His publishing business was not good. It was already in debt and needing more money. There was just one thing for him to do, and he did it at once, not stopping to cry over spilt milk, but with good courage and the old enthusiasm that never failed him. He returned to the trade of authorship. He dug out half-finished articles and stories, finished them, and sold them, and within a week after the Jones collapse he was at work on a novel based on the old seller's idea, which, eight years before, he and Howells had worked into a play. The brief letter in which he reported this news to Howells bears no marks of depression, though the writer of it was in his fifty-sixth year. He was by no means well, and his financial prospects were anything but golden. To W. D. Howells in Boston. Hartford, February 24, 91. Dear Howells, Mrs. Clemens has been sick abed for near two weeks but is up and around the room now, and gaining. I don't know whether she has written Mrs. Howells or not. I only know she was going to, and will yet if she hasn't. We are promising ourselves a whole world of pleasure in the visit, and you mustn't dream of disappointing us. Does this item stir an interest in you? Began a novel four days ago, and this moment finished chapter four title of the book colonel mulberry sellers american claimant of the great earldom of rossmore in the peerage of great britain yours ever mark probably mark twain did not return to literary work reluctantly he had always enjoyed writing and felt now that he was equipped better than ever for authorship at least so far as material was concerned there exists a fragmentary copy of a letter to some unknown correspondent in which he recites his qualifications. It bears evidence of having been written just at this time, and is of unusual interest at this point. Fragment of Letter to Blank, 1891 I confine myself to life with which I am familiar when pretending to portray life but i confined myself to the boy life out on the mississippi because that had a peculiar charm for me 
and not because I was not familiar with other phases of life. I was a soldier two weeks, once, in the beginning of the war, and was hunted like a rat the whole time. Familiar? My splendid Kipling himself has an more burnt-in, hard-baked, and unforgettable familiarity with that death on the pale horse with hail following after, which is a raw soldier's first fortnight in the field, and which, without any doubt, is the most tremendous fortnight and the vividest he is ever going to see. Yes, and I have shoveled silver tailings in a quartz mill a couple of weeks, and acquired the last possibilities of culture in that direction. And I've done pocket mining during three months in the one little patch of ground in the whole globe where nature conceals gold in pockets, or did before we robbed all of those pockets and exhausted, obliterated, annihilated the most curious freak nature ever indulged in. There are not thirty men left alive who, being told there was a pocket hidden on the broad slope of a mountain, would know how to go and find it, or have even the faintest idea of how to set about it. But I am one of the possible twenty or thirty who possess the secret, and I could go and put my hand on that hidden treasure with a most deadly precision. And I've been a prospector, and no pay rock from poor when I find it, just with a touch of the tongue. And I've been a silver miner, and know how to dig and shovel and drill and put in a blast. And so I know the mines and the miners interiorly, as well as Bret Hart knows them exteriorly. And I was a newspaper reporter four years in cities, and so saw the inside of many things, and was reporter in a legislature two sessions, and the same in Congress one session and thus learned to know personally three sample bodies of the smallest minds and the selfishest souls and the cowardliest hearts that God makes. And I was some years a Mississippi pilot, and familiarly knew all the different kinds of steamboatmen, a race apart, and not like other folk. And I was for some years a traveling jewel printer, and wandered from city to city, and so I know that sect familiarly. And I was a lecturer on the public platform a number of seasons, and was a responder to toasts at all the different kinds of banquets, and so I know a great many secrets about audiences, secrets not to be got out of books, but only acquirable by experience. And I watched over one dear project of mine for years, spent a fortune on it and failed to make it go, and the history of that would make a large book in which a million men would see themselves as in a mirror, and they would testify and say, Verily, this is not imagination. This fellow has been there, and after would cast dust upon their heads, cursing and blaspheming. And I am a publisher, and did pay to one author's widow, General Grant's, the largest copyright checks this world has seen, aggregating more than $80,000 in the first year. And I've been an author for 20 years, and an ass for 55. Now then, as the most valuable capital, or culture, 
or education usable in the building of novels is personal experience ought to be well equipped for that trade i surely have the equipment a wide culture and all of it real none of it artificial for i don't know anything about books no signature clemens for several years had been bothered by rheumatism in his shoulder the return now to the steady use of the pen aggravated his trouble and at times he was nearly disabled the phonograph for commercial dictation had been tried experimentally and mark twain was always ready for any innovation to w d howes in boston hartford february twenty eighth ninety one dear howes won't you drop in at the boston building new england phonograph company and talk into a phonograph in an ordinary conversation voice and see if another person who didn't hear you do it can take the words from the thing without difficulty and repeat them to you if the experiment is satisfactory also make somebody put in a message which you don't hear and see if afterward you can get it out without difficulty won't you then ask them on what terms they will rent me a phonograph for three months and furnish me cylinders enough to carry seventy-five thousand words a hundred seventy-five cylinders ain't it i don't want to erase any of them my right arm is nearly disabled by rheumatism but i am bound to write this book and sell a hundred thousand copies of it no i mean a million next fall i feel sure i can dictate the book into a phonograph if i don't have to yell i write two thousand words a day i think i can dictate twice as many but mind if this is going to be too much trouble to you go ahead and do it all the same yours ever mark howells always willing to help visited the phonograph place and a few days later reported results he wrote i talked your letter into a phonograph in my usual tone at my usual gait of speech then the phonograph man talked his answer in at his wonted swing and swell then we took the cylinder to a typewriter in the next room and she put the hooks into her ears and wrote the whole out i send you the result there is a mistake of one word i think that if you have the cheek to dictate the story into the phonograph all the rest is perfectly easy it wouldn't fatigue me to talk for an hour as i did clemens did not find the phonograph entirely satisfactory at least not for a time and he appears never to have used it steadily his early experience with it however seems interesting to w d howes in boston hartford april four ninety one dear howells i'm ashamed it happened in this way i was proposing to acknowledge the receipt of the play and the little book per phonograph so that you could see that the instrument is good enough for mere letter writing then i meant to add the fact that you can't write literature with it because it hasn't any ideas and it hasn't any gift for elaboration or smartness of talk or vigor of action or felicity of expression but it's just matter-of-fact compressive unornamental and as grave and unsmiling as the devil i filled four dozen cylinders and two sittings 
then found I could have said about as much with the pen, and said it a deal better. Then I resigned. I believe it could teach one to dictate literature to a phonographer, and sometime I will experiment in that line. The little book is charmingly written, and it interested me, but it flies too high for me. Its concretest things are filmy abstractions to me, and when I lay my grip on one of them and open my hand, I feel as embarrassed as I used to feel when I thought I had caught a fly. I'm going to try to mail it back to you today. I mean, I'm going to charge my memory. Charging my memory is one of my chief industries. With our loves and our kindest regards, distributed among you according to the proprieties, Yours ever, Mark. P.S. I'm sending that ancient mental telegraphy article to Harper's with a modest postscript. Probably read it to you years ago. S.L.C. The little book mentioned in this letter was by Swedenborg, an author in whom the Boston literary set was always deeply interested. Mental telegraphy appeared in Harper's magazine, and is now included in the uniform edition of Mark Twain's books. It was written in 1878. Joe Goodman had long since returned to California, it being clear that nothing could be gained by remaining in Washington. On receipt of the news of the typesetter's collapse, he sent a consoling word. Perhaps he thought Clemens would rage over the unhappy circumstance and possibly hold him in some measure to blame but it was generally the smaller annoyances of life that made Mark Twain rage. The larger catastrophes were likely to stir only his philosophy. The Library of American Literature mentioned in the following letter was a work in many volumes, edited by Edmund Clarence Stedman and Ellen Mackey Hutchinson. To Joe T. Goodman, April 1891. Dear Joe, Well, it's all right, anyway. Diplomacy couldn't have saved it, diplomacy of mine, at that late day. I hadn't any diplomacy in stock, anyway. In order to meet Jones's requirements, I had to surrender the old contract, a contract which made me boss of the situation and gave me the whip-hand of Page, and allow the new one to be drafted and put in its place. I was running an immense risk, but it was justified by Jones's promises, promises made to me not merely once, but every time I tallied with them. When February arrived, I saw signs which were mighty plain reading, signs which meant that Page was hoping and praying that Jones would go back on me, which would leave Page boss, and me robbed and out in the cold. His prayers were answered, and I am out in the cold. If I ever get back my nine-twentieths interest, it will be by lawsuit, which will be instituted in the indefinite future, when the time comes. I am at work again on a book, not with a great deal of spirit, but with enough, yes, plenty, and I am pushing my publishing house. It has turned the corner after cleaning $50,000 a year for three consecutive years and piling every cent of it into one book, Library of American Literature, 
and from next January onward it will resume dividends. But I've got to earn $50,000 for it between now and then, which I will do if I keep my health. This additional capital is needed for that same book because its prosperity is growing so great and exacting. It is dreadful to think of you in ill health. I can't realize it. You are always to me the same that you were in those days when matchless health and glowing spirits and delight in life were commonplaces with us. Lord save us all from old age and broken health and a hope tree that has lost the faculty of putting out blossoms. With love to you both from us all. Mark Mark Twain's residence in Hartford was drawing rapidly to a close. Mrs. Clemens was poorly, and his own health was uncertain. They believed that some of the European baths would help them. Furthermore, Mark Twain could no longer afford the luxury of his Hartford home. In Europe, life could be simpler and vastly cheaper. He was offered a thousand dollars apiece for six European letters by the McClure Syndicate and W. M. Laffin of The Sun. This would at least give him a start on the other side. The family began immediately their sad arrangements for departure. To Fred J. Hall, Manager Charles L. Webster and Company, New York. Hartford, April 14, 91. Dear Mr. Hall, Privately, Keep it to yourself. As you are already aware, we are going to Europe in June for an indefinite stay. We shall sell the horses and shut up the house. We wish to provide a place for our coachman who has been with us 21 years and is sober, active, diligent, and unusually bright and capable. You spoke of hiring a colored man as engineer and helper in the packing room. Patrick would soon learn that trade and be very valuable. We will cease to need him by the middle or end of June. Have you made irrevocable arrangements with the colored man, or would you prefer to have Patrick, if he thinks he would like to try? I have not said anything to him about it yet. Yours, S.L.C. It was to be a complete breaking up of their beautiful establishment. Patrick McClear, George the butler, and others of their household help had been like members of the family. We may guess at the heartbreak of it all, even though the letters remain cheerful. Howells, strangely enough, seems to have been about the last one to be told of their European plans. In fact, he first got wind of it from the papers, and wrote for information. Likely enough, Clemens had not until then had the courage to confess. To W. D. Howells in Boston. Hartford, May 20, 901. Dear Howells, For her health's sake, Mrs. Clemens must try bath somewhere, and this it is that has determined us to go to Europe. The water required seems to be provided at a little obscure and little visited nook up in the hills back of the Rhine somewhere, and you get to it by Rhine traffic boat and country stagecoach. Come, get sick, or sorry enough, and join us. We shall be a little while at that bath, and the rest of the summer at Ansi. This confidential to you. In 
Haute-Savoie, 22 miles from Geneva. Spend the winters in Berlin. I don't know how long we shall be in Europe. I have a vote, but I don't cast it. I'm going to do whatever the others desire, with leave to change their mind without prejudice, whenever they want to. Travel has no longer any charm for me. I have seen all the foreign countries I want to see, except heaven and hell, and I have only a vague curiosity as concerns one of those. I found I couldn't use the play. I had departed too far from its lines when I came to look at it. I thought I might get a great deal of dialogue out of it, but I got only fifteen loosely written pages. They saved me half a day's work. It was the cursing phonograph. There was abundance of good dialogue, but it couldn't be fitted into the new conditions of the story. Oh, look here. I did today what I have several times in past years thought of doing. Answered an interviewing proposition from a rich newspaper with the reminder that they had not stated the terms, that my time was all occupied with writing at good pay, and that as talking was harder work, I should not care to venture it unless I knew the pay was going to be proportionately higher. I wish I had thought of this the other day when Charlie Stoddard turned a pleasant Englishman loose on me, and I couldn't think of any rational excuse. Yours ever, Mark. Clemens had finished his seller's book and had disposed of the serial rights to the McClure syndicate. The house in Hartford was closed early in June, and on the 6th, the family, with one maid, Katie Leary, sailed on the Gascon. Two weeks later, they had begun a residence abroad, which was to last for more than nine years. It was not easy to get to work in Europe. Clemens' arm remained lame, and any effort at writing brought suffering. The Century magazine proposed another set of letters, but by the end of July he had barely begun on those promised to McClure and Laffin. In August, however, he was able to send three, one from Aix, about the baths there, another from Beirut, concerning the Wagner festival, and a third from Marienbad, in Bohemia, where they rested for a time. He decided that he would arrange for no more European letters when the six were finished, but would gather material for a book. He would take a courier and a Kodak, and go tramping again in some fashion that would be interesting to do and to write. The idea finally matured when he reached Switzerland and settled the family at the Hotel Beau Rivage, Ouchy, Lausanne, facing Lake Le Mans. He decided to make a floating trip down the Rhone, and he engaged Joseph Verry, a courier that had served him on a former European trip, to accompany him. The courier went over to Bourget and bought for five dollars a flat-bottomed boat and engaged its owner as their pilot. It was the morning of September 20 when they began their floating trip down the beautiful historic river that flows through the loveliest and most romantic region of France. He wrote daily to Mrs. Clemens, and his letters tell the story of that drowsy, happy experience better than the notes made with a view to publication. Clemens had arrived at Lake Bourget on the evening before the morning of their start, and slept on the island of Châtillon, in an old castle of the same name. Lake Bourget 
connects with the Rhone by a small canal. Letters and Memoranda to Mrs. Clemens in Ouchy, Switzerland, September 20, 1891, Sunday, 11 a.m. On the Lake Bourget, just started, the castle of Châtillon high overhead showing above the trees. It was a wonderfully still place to sleep in. Beside us, there was nobody in it but a woman, a boy, and a dog. A pope was born in the room I slept in. No, he became a pope later. The lake is smooth as glass. A brilliant sun is shining. Our boat is comfortable and shady with its awning. 11.20. We have crossed the lake and are entering the canal. Shall presently be in the Rhone. Noon. Nearly down to the Rhone, passing the village of Chanaz. 3.15 p.m. Sunday. We have been in the Rhone three hours. It is unimaginably still and reposeful and cool and soft and breezy. No rowing or work of any kind to do. We merely float with the current. We glide noiseless and swift, as fast as a London cab horse rips along, eight miles an hour, the swiftest current I've ever boated in. We have the entire river to ourselves, nowhere a boat of any kind. Goodbye, sweetheart. S.L.C. Port de Grolie, Monday, 4.15 p.m., September 21, 1891. Name of the village which we left five minutes ago. We went ashore at 5 p.m. yesterday, dear heart, and walked a short mile to Saint-Genix, a big village, and took quarters at the principal inn. Had a good dinner, and afterwards a long walk out of town on the banks of the Guillet till 7.30. Went to bed at 8.30 and continued to make notes and read books and newspapers till midnight. Slept until 8, breakfasted in bed, and lay till noon, because there had been a very heavy rain in the night and the day was still dark and lowering. But at noon the sun broke through, and in fifteen minutes we were tramping toward the river. Got afloat at one p.m., but at two-forty we had to rush suddenly ashore and take refuge in the above village. Just as we got ourselves and traps safely housed in the inn, the rain let go and came down in great style. We lost an hour and a half there, but we are off again now, with bright sunshine. I wrote you yesterday, my darling, and shall expect to write you every day. Good day and love to you all. Samuel On the Rhone, below Villebois, Tuesday noon. Good morning, sweetheart. Night caught us yesterday where we had to take quarters in a peasant's house which was occupied by the family and a lot of cows and calves, also several rabbits. Footnote. His word for fleas. End of footnote. The latter had a ball, and I was the ballroom. But they were very friendly, and didn't buy it. 
the peasants were mighty kind and hearty and flew around and did their best to make us comfortable this morning i breakfasted on the shore in the open air with two sociable dogs and a cat clean cloth napkin and table furniture white sugar a vast hunk of excellent butter good bread first-class coffee with pure milk fried fish just caught wonderful that so much cleanliness should come out of such a phenomenally dirty house an hour ago we saw the falls of the rhone a prodigiously rough and dangerous looking place shipped a little water but came to no harm it was one of the most beautiful pieces of piloting and boat management i ever saw our admiral knew his business we have had to run ashore for shelter every time it has rained heretofore but joseph has been putting in his odd time making a waterproof sunbonnet for the boat and now we sail along dry although we had many heavy showers this morning with a word of love to you all and particularly you samuel on the rhone below vienna i salute you my darling your telegram reached me in lyon last night and was very pleasant news indeed i was up and shaved before eight this morning but we got delayed and didn't sail from lyon till ten thirty an hour and a half lost and we've lost another hour two of them i guess since by an error we came in sight of vienna at two o'clock several miles ahead on a hill and i proposed to walk down there and let the boat go ahead of us so joseph and i got out and struck through a willow swamp along a dim path and by and by came out on the steep bank of a slough or inlet or something and we followed that bank forever and ever trying to get around the head of that slough finally i noticed a twig standing up in the water and by george it had a distinct and even vigorous quiver to it i don't know when i have felt so much like a donkey on an island i wanted to drown somebody but i hadn't anybody i could spare however after another long tramp we found a lonely native and he had a scow and soon we were on the mainland yes and a blame sight further from vienna than we were when we started notes i make millions of them and so i get no time to write to you if you've got a pad there please send it post restant to avignon i may not need it but i fear i shall i'm straining to reach saint pierre de boeuf but it's going to be a close fit i reckon afloat friday three p m nine one livy darling we sailed from saint pierre de boeuf six hours ago and are now approaching to a nor where we shall not stop but go on and make valence a city of twenty five thousand people it's too delicious floating with the swift current under the awning these superb sunshiny days in deep peace and quietness some of these curious old historical towns strangely persuade me but it is so lovely afloat that i don't stop but view them from the outside and sail on we get abundance of grapes and peaches for next to nothing 
Joseph is perfect. He is at his very best and never was better in his life. I guess he gets discouraged and feels disliked and in the way when he is lying around, but here he is perfection and brimful of useful alacrities and helps and ingenuities. When I woke up an hour ago and heard the clock strike four, I said, I seem to have been asleep an immensely long time. I must have gone to bed mighty early. I wonder what time I did go to bed. And I got up and lit a candle and looked at my watch to see. A float two hours below Bourg saint Andiol, Monday, 11 a.m., September 28. Livy, darling, I didn't write yesterday. We left La Voulte in a driving storm of cold rain. Couldn't write in it, and at 1 p.m., when we were not thinking of stopping, we saw a picturesque and mighty ruin on a high hill back of a village, and I was seized with a desire to explore it. So we landed at once and set out with rubbers and umbrella, sending the boat ahead to saint Andiole, and we spent three hours clambering about those cloudy heights among those worn and vast and idiotic ruins of a castle built by two crusaders six hundred fifty years ago. The work of these asses was full of interest, and we had a good time inspecting, examining, and scrutinizing it. All the hills on both sides of the Rhone have peaks and precipices, and each has its gray and wasted pile of moldy walls and broken towers. The Romans displaced the Gauls, the Visigoths displaced the Romans, the Saracens displaced the Visigoths, the Christians displaced the Saracens, and it was these pious animals who built these strange lairs and cut each other's throats in the name and for the glory of God, and robbed and burned and slew in peace and war, and the pauper and the slave built churches, and the credit of it went to the bishop, who racked the money out of them. These are pathetic shores, and they make one despise the human race. We came down in an hour by rail, but I couldn't get your telegram till this morning, for it was Sunday, and they had shut up the post office to go to the circus. I went too. It was all one family, parents and five children, performing in the open air to two hundred of these enchanted villagers who contributed coppers when called on. It was a most gay and strange and pathetic show. I got up at seven this morning to see the poor devils cook their poor breakfast and pack up their sordid fineries. This is a nine-kilometer current, and the wind is with us. We should make Avignon before four o'clock. I saw watermelons and pomegranates for sale at saint Andiol. With the power of love, sweetheart, Samuel. Hotel de Europe, Avignon. Monday, 6 p.m., September 28. Well, Livy, darling, I have been having a perfect feast of letters for an hour, and I thank you and dear Clam with all my heart. It's like hearing from home after a long absence. It is early to be in bed, but I'm always abed before nine on this voyage, and up at seven or a trifle later every morning. If I ever take such a trip again, I will have myself called at the first tinge of dawn and get to sea as soon after as possible.
the early dawn on the water nothing can be finer as i know by old mississippi experience i did so long for you and sue yesterday morning the most superb sunrise the most marvelous sunrise and i saw it all from the very faintest suspicion of the coming dawn all the way through to the final explosion of glory but it had interest private to itself and not to be found elsewhere in the world for between me and it in the far distant eastward was a silhouette mountain range in which i had discovered the previous afternoon a most noble face upturned to the sky and mighty form outstretched which i had named napoleon dreaming of universal empire and now this prodigious face soft rich blue spiritual asleep tranquil reposeful lay against that giant conflagration of ruddy and golden splendors all rayed like a wheel with the upstreaming and far-reaching lances of the sun it made one want to cry for delight it was so supreme in its unimaginable majesty and beauty we had a curious experience today a little after i had sealed and directed my letter to you in which i said we should make avignon before four we got lost we ceased to encounter any village or ruin mentioned in our particularizes and detailed guide of the rhone went drifted along by the hour in a wholly unknown land and on an uncharted river confound it we stopped talking and did nothing but stand up in the boat and search the horizons with the glass and wonder what in the devil had happened and at last away yonder at five o'clock when some east towers and fortresses hove in sight we couldn't recognize them for avignon yet we knew by the broken bridge that it was avignon then we saw what the trouble was at some time or other we had drifted down the wrong side of an island and followed a sluggish branch of the rhone not frequented in modern times we lost an hour and a half by it and missed one of the most picturesque and gigantic and history-sodden masses of castellated medieval ruin that europe can show it was dark by the time we had wandered through the town and got the letters and found the hotel so i went to bed we shall leave here at noon tomorrow and float down to arles arriving about dark and there bid good-bye to the boat the river trip finished between arles and nimes and avignon again we shall be till saturday morning then rail it through on that day to ouchy reaching the hotel at eleven at night if the train isn't late next day sunday if you like go to basel and monday to berlin but i shall be at your disposal to do exactly as you desire and prefer with no end of love to all of you and twice as much to you sweetheart samuel i believe my arm is a trifle better than it was when i started the mention in the foregoing letter of the napoleon effigy is the beginning of what proved to be a rather interesting episode mark twain thought a great deal of his discovery as he called it the giant figure of napoleon outlined by the distant mountain range 
in his notebook he entered memoranda telling just where it was to be seen and added a pencil sketch of the huge profile but then he characteristically forgot all about it and when he recalled the incident ten years later he could not remember the name of the village Beauchastel, from which the great figure could be seen also that he had made a record of the place but he was by this time more certain than ever that his discovery was a remarkable one which if known would become one of the great natural wonders such as niagara falls theodore stanton was visiting him at the time and clemens urged him on his return to france to make an excursion to the rhone and locate the lost napoleon as he now called it but clemens remembered the wander as being somewhere between arles and avignon instead of about a hundred miles above the last town stanton naturally failed to find it and it remained for the writer of these notes motoring up the rhone one september day exactly twenty-two years after the first discovery to relocate the vast reclining figure of the first consul of france dreaming of universal empire the rediscovery was not difficult with mark twain's memoranda as a guide and it was worth while perhaps the lost napoleon is not so important a natural wonder as mark twain believed but it is a striking picture and on a clear day the calm blue face outlined against the sky will long hold the traveller's attention to clara clemens in ouchy switzerland afloat eleven twenty a m september twenty nine tuesday dear old ben the vast stone masses and huge towers of the ancient papal palace of avignon are projected above an intervening wooded island a mile up the river behind me for we are already on our way to arles it is a perfectly still morning with a brilliant sun and very hot outside but i am under cover of the linen hood and it is cool and shady in here please tell mamma i got her very last letter this morning and i perceive by it that i do not need to arrive at ouchy before saturday midnight i am glad because i couldn't do the railroading i am proposing to do during the next two or three days and get there earlier i could put in the time till sunday midnight but shall not venture it without telegraphic instructions from her to nimes day after tomorrow october one care hotel manivet the only adventures we have is in drifting into rough seas now and then they are not dangerous but they go through all the motions of it yesterday when we shot the bridge of the holy spirit it was probably in charge of some inexperienced deputy spirit for the day for we were allowed to go through the wrong arch which brought us into a tabillion below which tried to make this old scow stand on its head of course i lost my temper and blew it off in a way to be heard above the roar of the tossing waters i lost it because the admiral had taken that arch in deference to my opinion that it was the best one while his own judgment told him to take the one nearest the other side of the river i could have poisoned him i was so mad to think i had hired such a turnip a boatman in command should obey nobody's orders but his own and yield to nobody's suggestions it was very sweet of you to write me dear 
and I thank you ever so much, with greatest love and kisses, Papa. To Mrs. Clemens in Ushi, Switzerland. Arla, September 30, noon. Livy, darling, I ain't got no time to write today, because I am sightseeing industriously and imagining my chapter. Bade goodbye to the river trip and gave away the boat yesterday evening. We had ten great days in her. We reached here after dark. We would do about 4.30, counting by distance, but we couldn't calculate on such a lifeless current as we found. I love you, sweetheart. Samuel. It had been a long time since Clemens had written to his old friend Twitchell, but the Rhone trip must have reminded him of those days thirteen years earlier, when, comparatively young men, he and Twitchell were tramping through the Black Forest and scaling Gimme Pass. He sent Twitchell a reminder of that happy time. To Rev. Joseph H. Twitchell in Hartford, Connecticut. Nimes, October 1, 91. Dear Joe, I have been ten days floating down the Rhone on a raft from Lake Bourget, and a most curious and darling kind of a trip it has been. You ought to have been along. I could have made room for you easily, and you would have found that a pedestrian tour in Europe doesn't begin with a raft voyage for hilarity and mild adventure, and intimate contact with the unvisited native of the back settlements, and extinction from the world and newspapers, and a conscience in a state of coma, and lazy comfort and solid happiness. In fact, there's nothing that's so lovely. But it's all over. I gave the raft away yesterday at Arles, and am loafing along back by short stages on the rail to Ushi Lucerne, where the tribe are staying. Love to you all, Mark. The Clemenses settled in Berlin for the winter at seven Kornerstrasse, and later at the Hotel Royale. There had been no permanent improvement in Mark Twain's arm, and he found writing difficult. Some of the letters promised to Laffin and McClure were still unfinished. Young Hall, his publishing manager in America, was working hard to keep the business afloat, and being full of the optimism of his years, did not fail to make as good a showing as he could. We may believe his letters were very welcome to Clemens and his wife, who found little enough in the general prospect to comfort them. To Mr. Hall in New York, Berlin, November 27, 91. Dear Mr. Hall, That kind of a statement is valuable. It came this morning. This is the first time since the business began that I've had a report that furnished the kind of information I wanted, and was really enlightening and satisfactory. Keep it up. Don't let it fall into desuetude. Everything looks so fine and handsome with the business now that I feel a great let-up from depression. The rewards of your long and patient industry are on their way, and their arrival safe in port, presently, seems assured. By George, I shall be glad when the ship comes in. My arm is so much better that I was able to make a speech last night to 250 Americans, but when they threw my portrait on the screen it was a sorrowful reminder, 
for it was from a negative of fifteen years ago and hadn't a gray hair in it and now that my arm is better i have stolen a couple of days and finished up a couple of mcclure letters that have been lying a long time i shall mail one of them to you next tuesday registered look for it i shall register and mail the other one concerning the jungfrau next friday look out for it also and drop me a line to let me know they have arrived i shall write the sixth and last letter by and by when i have studied berlin sufficiently yours in a most cheerful frame of mind and with my and all the family's thanksgiving greetings and best wishes s l clemens postscript by mrs clemens written on mr clemens letter dear mr hall this is my birthday and your letter this morning was a happy addition to the little gifts on the breakfast table i thought of going out and spending money for something unnecessary after it came but concluded perhaps i better wait a little longer sincerely yours o l clemens the german chicago was the last of the six mcclure letters and was finished that winter in berlin it is now included in the uniform edition of mark twain's works and is one of the best descriptive articles of the german capital ever written he made no use of the rhone notes further than to put them together in literary form they did not seem to him to contain enough substance to warrant publication a letter to hall written toward the end of december we find rather gloomy in tone though he is still able to extract comfort and even cheerfulness from one of mr hall's reports memorandum to fred j hall in new york among the manuscripts i left with you are a few that have a recent look and are written on rather stiff pale green paper if you will have those typewritered and keep the originals and send me the copies one per mail not two i'll see if i can use them but tell howells and other inquirers that my hopes of writing anything are very slender i seem to be disabled for life drop mcclure a line and tell him the same i can't dare to make an engagement now for even a single letter i am glad howells is on a magazine but sorry he gave up the study i shall have to go on a magazine myself if this l a l continues to hold my nose down to the grindstone much longer i'm going to hold my breath now for thirty days then the annual statement will arrive and i shall know how we feel merry christmas to you from us all sincerely s l c p s just finished the above and finished raging at the eternal german tax gatherer and so all the jubilant things which i was gonna say about the past year's business got knocked out of me after writing this present letter i was feeling blue about huck finn but i sat down and overhauled your reports from now back to last april and compared them with the splendid october november business and went to bed feeling refreshed and fine for certainly it has been a handsome year now rush me along the annual report and let's see how we feel s l c end of section thirty three recording by james k white chula vista